Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Adrienne Scheck. She's a senior research scientist in the Institute of Molecular Medicine at Phoenix Children's Research Institute. And we're going to talk about uh, metabolic therapies for uh, brain tumors, metabolic ketosis. So, Adrienne, thanks for coming. Uh, sure, my pleasure. Well, tell me about your, uh, your research. What's the, the current thrust of it right now? Well, like I said, they, uh, they closed the research lab at Phoenix Children's, but I am still working on a ketogenic diet in brain tumors. I'm working um, very much in collaboration with my colleague in the UK, Dr. Nell Syed. And uh, we're also interested in looking at it in uh, diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma, something I started in the lab at uh, PCH, and I'd like to continue it, trying to get that going again in another lab as an adjunct faculty. So mainly what we found in the past is that the ketogenic diet seems to potentiate brain tumor therapy, uh, particularly radiation and chemotherapy. And um, even when used alone in animal models, and this is all in animal models or in cells in the laboratory, even when used in alone, it does seem to um, work against the tumor cells. And the original thought was that this had to do with glucose and reducing glucose because tumor cells need lots of glucose. But we and others have found that it actually has a huge number of different effects. It affects pretty much every hallmark of cancer. So we're kind of very interested in some of the things it does from an epigenetic point of view in terms of how it has so many effects on on cancer cells. And we're also very interested in the way it potentiates radiation, of course. Um, When you say potentiates, does that mean it makes more effective? what, What does that mean? It does seem to make it more effective. We're not 100% sure why. Some preliminary experiments suggest that it it slows the repair of radiation-induced damage. I'm not sure that it necessarily causes more damage, but I think that there are some effects on repair. And of course, cancer cells, if they repair the damage done by radiation, they will survive. The effects on cancer cells are very different than the effect on normal cells. I think that's really important. We found that in our mouse models and also in, in cells and culture that some of the effects on tumors that, that go against their growth or that, that inhibit their growth, it doesn't se- that doesn't seem to happen in normal cells. So normal cells don't seem to be bothered. In fact, normal cells use ketones for energy very well. So they're actually very happy with ketones and cancer cells don't appear to be. What do you think is going on? So cancer cells, uh, from what I understand, they're, I don't know if they completely can't do oxidative phosphorylation or it's just downregulated. And they do more glycolysis, I guess, fermentation. But like how, how different is their respiration, their metabolism? Is it completely shifted or is it only partially shifted? To a large extent, that's going to depend on who you ask and which tumor cells you're looking at. So the dogma was at first that cancer cells basically completely do aerobic glycolysis and cannot do oxidative phosphorylation. There are people who um, say that all cancer cells have defective mitochondria. I don't know that anything in cancer can be said as all. Cancer not only uses glucose for energy, but very, very often they can use glutamine for energy. And um, I think that the fact that they can kind of switch what they use for energy 
suggests that there's a lot that goes on that we don't know about. So I would say mostly that's a correct statement that they use glycolysis, even the presence of oxygen, but I'm not sure it's complete. Uh, I don't know if all the data is in on that yet, but again, it depends on who you ask. Some people are say, absolutely, it is all glycolysis. But I, I, tumor right. cells are, are very adaptive. So it's, it's kind of interesting to try to figure out one of the things that we want to do that we've been kind of working towards is select for cells that don't seem to be. And when I say select for cells, I mean, if you grow cells in the laboratory, you can select for cells that have certain phenotypes or certain behaviors. That's probably to a large extent what happens in tumors. When you use any kind of therapy on a tumor, some of the cells in that tumor are likely to be resistant and they will grow. Tumor cells shuffle their genes like a deck of cards, their Darwinism speeded up. So I think that there's a lot that they can do. And if you put selective pressure on like therapy, for example, there's going to be a couple of cells in there that for whatever reason might be resistant and they will grow. So one of the things we'd like to do is look at the cells that seem to be resistant, for example, to growth inhibition by ketones and find out what's different about them. Are they indeed changing what they're using for energy? Are they changing other aspects of what ketones do in terms of turning certain genes off? So that's, I think that's kind of something that's still out there in terms of, uh, we really don't know, but it's a very interesting. Well, you mentioned, um, you mentioned epigenetic change. You also men- mentioned shuffling of the underlying, you know, sequence of base pairs of genes. What's the predominant mechanism? I know that, you know, cancer tumors are heterogeneous, but when people say heterogeneous, are they epigenetically heterogeneous or just genetically heterogeneous? What, what's observed? All of the above. So uh, when I think of, of tumors, I think they're, they're definitely epigenetically heterogeneous and they're absolutely genetically heterogeneous. There's no question about that. That's been done if you look at different regions of tumors, but it's even been done by single cell genetics and single cell analyses that you can find differences. So uh, a couple of years ago, they came out for, in brain tumors, for example, they did, so the, the uh, government paid for a huge genomic initiative and using all that data, they segmented brain tumors, in particular, one type of brain tumor, glioblastoma, into approximately four different genetic backgrounds. It turned out when they later kind of looked a little closer, if you look at a single person's tumor, you can find tumor cells in in those different genetic backgrounds. So even within one person's tumor, you can find tremendous differences. So it's, it's at the genetic level, it's at the epigenetic level, it's at the biochemical level, I think pretty much anything you can think of, you're going to find that heterogeneity. And that's what makes them so hard to treat. What would you guess is the order of change? Do you think epigenetic changes happen first or is it uh, underlying gene changes or is it, you know, and what goes along with it? Uh, I would guess that the localized microbiome will change as well. Yeah, the localized microbiome has been shown to change, especially with something like a ketogenic diet. But even without that, there are changes in the, in the, in the microbiome, I think. Honestly, I don't know what's first. I know a lot of people think that biochemical changes and metabolic, I should say metabolic changes come first, and that that is what causes all of the other downstream effects, meaning molecular changes and genetic changes and epigenetic changes. I honestly, I don't think I would even hazard a guess as to what comes first. And I would honestly say that I think it probably has to do with different tumors and what's going on. So for example, Would I say that a metabolic change happens first in somebody that gets cancer, possibly due to smoking? I, you know, I don't know. There are chemical changes that are happening that might change genetically or 
metabolically or epigenetically versus a brain tumor that we don't know what, where it comes from. So I, I guess all of my answers are, it could be almost anything. And I'm willing to bet that it's different things in different people. In terms of figuring out what comes first, again, if you ask different scientists, you'll get probably different hypotheses. My thought process is it's, it's kind of like that old saying, um, closing the barn door after the horse is out. Once one thing happens, there's a cascade of other things that go on. So going back and changing that one thing, maybe if you could figure it out, you could prevent the formation of cancer, but I don't think it's useful for treatment. Well, in a healthy person, you don't seem to have you know, genetic changes, but you have plenty of epigenetic changes. So what are, if you do a side-by-side comparison of healthy cell versus cancer cell, what's different about them? That's a very good question, and it's super complicated. First of all, actually, in healthy people, there actually are probably genetic changes. But remember, we have two copies of every gene. So if you've got one copy that is damaged for some reason, the other copy can very often kind of take care of it, depending on the gene, of course. There's also a lot of epigenetic changes that are not disease-causing, lots of them. Uh, Some of them even are thought to be behavioral. So I, I don't think there's enough known about what exactly is different between epigenetic changes that lead to disease versus epigenetic changes that don't. Again, it's one of these things that there's so many changes that go on, and I would guess that a relatively limited number actually cause disease. Well, there are any good models that you're using? Uh, mouse model, organoids? Are you able to do any, you know, in vivo type work? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. The mouse models we've used for all of my all of my work is a uh, syngenetic. That means it's the same genetic background and it's immune competent. So it is a mouse model with a mouse tumor. That's allowed us to look at the effects of ketones. It's allowed us to look at the effects on the tumor, but it also allowed us to see that the ketogenic diet enhanced the anti-tumor immune response. The other models that are common would be, for example, to take human tumor cells and put them in a mouse. The shortcoming of that is that you have to use an immune incompetent mouse, essentially. There are some models now of what they call humanized mice. They're extremely expensive, where their immune system is a little bit more like a human. So all all models have shortcomings. I happen to like the mouse model we used because the even though it's a mouse tumor, it recapitulates a lot of the things that are that are seen in GBM and the fact that there's an intact immune system allows us to look at the microenvironment. So the microenvironment is becoming very important, or it, it was always very important. It's becoming recognized as being very important. The microenvironment is really, what are the cells around the tumor? That includes immune cells, that includes cytokines, that includes inflammatory cells, microglia, glia, basically all the cells around the tumor and what they're doing. And an immune competent animal allows you to have a fairly intact microenvironment. There are also genetically engineered models where there are 
genetic defects put into cells and the animals, you breed the animals and then the pups develop tumors. Uh, again, the, the good part about this is you're not surgically implanting the cells, so you're not perturbing the, the tissue. The downside is that uh, you don't always know when the tumors are going to arise, and you're looking at tumors with very specific genetic uh, issues. So all of these models have their good points and their bad points, and I guess the thing to do is to look at the into the literature and, and see, okay, what seems to be happening in a lot of the models? But we personally, I prefer as a immune-competent model. So what's, what's unique about glioblastoma that's not common to other cancers that allows you to, allows you to understand its mechanism better? Are there any unique benefits to you studying glioblastoma versus pancreatic cancer would be harder because of X, Y, or Z? You know, what, what's unique about it that makes it either easier or harder to study? I don't think there's anything unique about any one cancer that makes it easier or harder to study with the possible exception of some of the liquid tumors like leukemias, because it's easier to get samples, especially from people, because you simply have to get blood as opposed to solid tissue. There's nothing easier or harder than any tumor. They all have their their hard things and their easy things. With brain tumors, when you study therapy, you've got to worry about whether the therapy can cross the blood-brain barrier, which is a very tight barrier in your brain that is meant to prevent toxins from entering your brain. This in in humans and I guess in in animals too. The other thing about brain tumors in people is um, the deadly aspects of the brain tumors are the fact that they're a little bit more difficult to get out surgically from the point of view of you can't simply go, hey, I'm going to go three centimeters away from the brain and just lop out this big chunk of tissue because the brain is is what we call uh, expensive real estate. It's different than colon cancer, for example, where you can you know, resect large amounts. Good points about brain tumors, they rarely leave the central nervous system, so they rarely leave the brain and the spinal cord. Other tumors spread to other parts of the body, uh, including the brain, interestingly enough. So from that point of view, I guess they might be harder to study because they will spread, and brain tumors tend to stay more localized. So I don't know if that's answering your question, but it's kind of, there's, I guess, good and bad points to all things, uh, all of the different tumors. They have some, some of them have similar genetics. Sometimes they're different. Uh, so there are certain genes that you'll find, like P53 and other genes that might be involved in many different tumors, even, even tumors that seem very, very different, and some that don't seem to be as, as widespread. In terms of um, metabolism and activity, well, again, what's different about glioblastoma versus uh, other cancers? Like what, what facets of it are very different, not just a little bit different, if anything? I'm not sure there's, there's any facet that's very different. Most cancers use lots of glucose and most cancers do aerobic glycolysis. I would say possibly all cancers do aerobic glycolysis. One thing that might be different is the, um, the environment that a brain tumor is in because your brain also uses lots of glucose. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So in terms of Imaging studies, things like that, because the brain uses lots of glucose, it's, you have to be careful if you just drop glucose that you're not dropping the glucose in the brain. But that's where ketones come into hand, it come handy because your brain uses lots of ketones. Other than that, metabolically, I don't know that there's anything that makes a brain tumor really unique per se. It's well, one thing I would say is you know, I've been told again, this is dogma, but it's not the primary tumor that kills you; it's the metastases. But if a brain tumor it is the brain, it is the primary, essentially, it's killing you, I guess. So, and again, also with the metastases, if I have liver cancer, it's, I would guess, liver cancer cells in my brain instead of brain cells. So 
I would think the microenvironment in some way would be preserved because you have brain cells in the brain. You don't have necessarily other organ cells in the brain that are cancerous. So I would think the interaction with the local microenvironment and of the remaining healthy cells would be different fundamentally because it's a primary. To a large extent, yes. When you talk about metastases, uh, you're talking about what they call seed versus soil, which is you've got the genetics of the, meta- of the metastatic cell, but you've also got the environment it's in. A cell that is successful as a metastatic cell has a lot of features that not all cancer cells have. And by that, I mean a very, very small percentage of the cells that break off from a, a main tumor are actually successful going elsewhere uh, to set up housekeeping or, or form a metastasis. There is a difference in the interaction with the microenvironment, but interestingly enough, brain tumor cells do not leave the brain. They are deadly not because they spread so much as because there's not a whole lot of area to go in the brain. Your brain is surrounded by a skull. And like I said, it's very, uh, it's um, high dollar real estate, so to speak. Inflammation in the brain really is not supported very well. And because of the blood brain barrier, it's a little harder to treat. Uh, So radiation will work to some extent, but it's not often totally curable. And there aren't a huge number of chemotherapies that can be used in the brain because your blood brain barrier blocks them from entering. Other cancers are a little more amenable sometimes to chemotherapy. And they're probably more amenable to, to really be cut out, to serious resection. Then once they, once they travel around, it's very hard to keep track of them because there's lots of micrometastases. But a metastatic tumor in the brain is more like its original tumor than it is like a brain tumor. So for example, when lung cancer travels to the brain, it is much more sensitive to radiation than a brain tumor is. So there, there is a difference when another tumor travels to the brain, but there is still something of a microenvironment, but it's not necessarily the same. And brain tumors also tend to inhibit the anti-tumor immune response. Honestly, I don't know whether metastatic cancers uh, do to the same extent in the brain. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just not aware of that one way or the other. Have, uh, have you or anyone else looked for uh, a microbiome in the brain? to see if there's uh, any other creatures in there hanging out in partnership with the cells? Not that I'm aware of, not a microbiome. That would be, uh, we have uh, initiated a, um, a collaboration and there are some people looking at changes in the microbiome in the gut, but not necessarily in the brain. When you say microbiome, I assume you mean bacteria and bacteria in the brain would not be a good thing. I, I don't know that anybody would find bacteria in the brain that wouldn't be an infection. Well, the reason why I say it is I, I've, I've spoken to, um, I keep bringing her up, uh, this researcher, Florencia McAllister, she's studying pancreatic tumors, and she says there is a localized microbiome around pancreatic tumors. Therefore, there is a pancreas microbiome as well that's different. And I know we have a skin microbiome, a gut. Maybe we have a microbiome in every part of our body. It just hasn't been uh, discovered. So why not? Maybe there is one in the brain. Who knows? Honestly, could be. I think I'm a little out of my depth on this one. <laughs> I won't say that it's impossible. I have not seen anything about a microbiome directly in the brain, but that doesn't mean that it's not there. And I'm just, I'm a little out of my depth on that one. It's okay. Yeah, no, I just, I'm just curious. I wonder if anyone's looked at cerebral spinal fluid from the spinal tap and looked for microbes. I know if you have meningitis, then they'll show up. But anyway, well, going back to your area, uh, ketosis and, you know, ketogenic diet, what um, you said, ketogenic diet does many different things. What are some of the things that you've observed that it does, you know, to the cells in the brain? In terms of the cells of the brain, you mean the normal cells or the cancer cells or both? Oh. With respect to the normal brain, your normal brain loves ketones. There are studies, in fact, that's one of the reasons why ketogenic diet or ketones are being looked at for other neurodegenerative diseases. 
Dr. Stephen Cunane has done some beautiful PET scan work. And Dr. Mary Newport has done some very nice, she actually kind of was one of the people who started using uh, the ketogenic diet for Alzheimer's. Turns out when your brain can no longer use glucose very effectively, it can still use ketones for energy. So your brain really likes ketones, your normal brain. In terms of a brain tumor, going outside of the, the energy aspect of it, because we don't think that brain tumors can really use ketones very effectively for energy. Uh, when we looked at the tumors, we found so many things. We found a reduction in the formation of new blood vessels, which is called angiogenesis. We and others, we're not the only ones who have, have seen this. Uh, so the tumors, and I've had surgeons say to me, you know, I can't really prove this, but it seems like the tumor in this patient was a little less bloody. And I've heard that from a, a couple of neurosurgeons. So there is, there does seem to be a reduction in angiogenesis. Uh, I already mentioned there seems to be, and this is in our mouse models. Uh, I'm, I'm being very specific uh, about what I'm saying from now on. There does seem to be an increase in the anti-tumor immune response. That was work we did in collaboration with uh, Dr. Daniel, uh, Daniel Lucier and, and Joseph Blattman at Arizona State University. We find that there's a reduction in hypoxia. So tumors tend to have areas of reduced oxygen. That's called hypoxic areas. And those areas, the cells in those areas tend to be more resistant to therapy. It also turns on a gene called HIF1-alpha. And that, I think in cartoons. So when I think of some of these tumor-promoting genes, I think of dropping a pebble in a pond and you get all these circles going out from the pebble. So HIF1-alpha is a pebble. It, it turns on a whole bunch of different things that are good for the tumor and obviously bad for the patient. So the animals on ketogenic diet had a reduction in HIF1-alpha. They had a reduction in, um, in the activation of some other pro-tumor genes, NF-kappa B, for example. It looks like it might have reduced some of the growth factor pathways. Growth factor pathways are pathways that promote the growth of the tumor for various reasons. Let's see. Oh, it reduces, uh, this is, I think, very important. We got um, a reduction in inflammation around the tumor, and ketones are known to be anti-inflammatory. Uh, some of the mechanisms for that are known. The, it, it seems to inhibit the formation of something called an inflammasome. But if you looked at the, uh, the inf inflammation around the tumor was reduced, edema, which is the basically swelling around the tumor, is reduced. In terms of inflammation, we also we found a reduction in a gene called cox 2, cyclooxygenase 2, and that is a pro-inflammatory gene. So it, it seems to do a lot of, of things along those lines that seem to be really good. One of the things that I'm doing in collaboration with Dr. Nil Syed, in fact, Dr. Syed is, is the main driver of this. She's doing the majority of the work. She has looked at the microRNAs in these tumors. MicroRNAs are very, very small RNAs, and they are an epigenetic modifier. So microRNAs can change the expression of genes. And we did a, a panel, she did a whole panel of them in some of our tumors and found quite a few of them are altered in brain tumors in animals from ketogenic diet relative to standard diet. And they actually modify the expression of a host of genes. And in fact, pretty much every hallmark of cancer had some microRNAs that affect that hallmark that were affected by the ketogenic diet. So I think with respect to what it's doing, we're kind of just scratching the surface. Oh, I'm sure there's tons. Um, have you had either an animal or, or people where um, the tumor was imaged in their brain, then they went on a ketogenic diet for a month or two, then they ended up having a resection and the morphology of the tumor changed? 
Or can you see based on ketogenic diet that the morphology and structure and layering and all that and heterogeneity of the tumor is changed by the new diet? Nothing that I would put my finger on only from the point of view of those would be, we don't have a resection model in our, for our animals at the moment. I know that the surgeons have said one in particular, these are sort of one-offs essentially. They're like, you would say an individual individual patient because it's not like there's a lot of them. So you can't really say it's, it's not like a clinical shot. But in particular, one patient I can think of had a, uh, a small resection and forget how long after that he went in for a, a second resection. It wasn't really a recurrent tumor. It was more they went in to get more of it out. And he had been on ketogenic diet for a few weeks. And the neurosurgeon said to me, you know, I can't say this is definitely due to the KD, but the tumor really seemed like it, it had actually gotten a little smaller. It wasn't as bloody. It really seemed like it made a difference. So from the heterogeneity point of view, we haven't, those studies are not something that's been done. You'd have to look at lots of areas of the tumor, things like that. But in terms of changes of the, in the tumor, those are the sorts of things we're seeing. And if, if there's less angiogenesis, then there's almost certainly going to be a reduction in the expression of the genes that promote angiogenesis. So I don't know if that actually has answered your question, but it's the kind of thing that, that a larger clinical trial would be, it'd be a great thing to check. And we would certainly want to do yeah, something. If, it, if it's, if it stymies angiogenesis, that would probably put a size limit on, if I just, if I just pretend they're spheres, that would probably put like a radius size limit on, on any given sphere because before it goes like anoxic in the middle and, you know, can't continue. Sure. But then again, that could lead to more, uh, you know, formation of secondary sites because the tumor is like, all right, we can't get blood vessels in here. We better, you know, butt off and form another structure because we reached our size limit. So. I guess there's just probably a lot of morphological, you know, dynamics uh, along with other dynamics based on uh, the ketogenic diet. Yes. There's other things. Some of the stuff that I'm really excited about with the ketogenic diet though, is there are therapies, for example, Avastin or Bevacizumab. It's Avastin is the, the name that patients would hear that the purpose of that is to reduce angiogenesis. Well, the ketogenic diet changes the, instead of reducing the, the molecule, it reduces the receptor of the molecule. So it might make Avastin work better. In terms of the, the that's what I think the ketogenic diet is going to do. It's going to help some of these therapies work better. In terms of your comment about the cells saying, hey, I can't get enough air here, I'm going to, you know, or, or enough nutrients here, I'm going to go elsewhere. Excellent, excellent comment. Uh, I totally agree with you. One of the things that's kind of interesting about the ketogenic diet is it seems to reduce invasion. So it does seem to, in the laboratory, if you take cells and you can do something called a scratch test, which is where you grow the cells to cover a surface and then you make a scratch in the surface and you watch how long does it take for the cells to fill that scratch in? Uh, it's, it's kind of a, a quick and dirty way to look at how well do these cells migrate. Ketones do seem to reduce that. And ketones are thought to reduce the invasiveness in tumors. Some There are other people who have kind of... Um, mention things like that, that there does seem to be less invasion of those cells. And in fact, in one extremely metastatic model called a um, VM2 model, it was shown to really reduce the, the spread of the tumor, ketogenic diet and ketones. So there's data out there in, in mice that it suggests that ketones or a ketogenic diet might reduce the spread of tumors. So if you can reduce, I'm kind of dreaming here, but if you can reduce the vascularization of the tumor, but at the same time reduce that tumor's ability to spread, 
you might actually make these therapies work better. And it, it might be sort of a one-two punch in some ways. Okay. What seems to be the most powerful effect of a ketogenic diet on brain <laughs> cancer in terms of, in terms of like extending your life, you know, the life of a patient in terms of, uh, you know, quality of life and length of life with the condition. I'm, I'm laughing because the, the, you're asking questions that are really, really excellent and really hard to answer. Uh, the answers to everything is sort of ends up being all of the above, depending on who you ask. Do I think that it extends life in some people? Yes. Do I think it improves quality of life in some people? Yes. I say in some people, because if somebody's what I've heard, basically, all I can do is go by what I've heard from people and from physicians. So yes, I think it extends quality. It, it extends length of life in some people. Why do I always qualify it in some people? Because the genetics of tumors are so varied that there is nothing that works in everything, just as there's no chemotherapy that works for every tumor. And I don't mean every tumor, meaning different diagnoses. I mean the same diagnosis in every patient. There's nothing that you can say, this will absolutely work in every single patient. So sure. the ketogenic diet does seem to extend life in some patients. There are no completed clinical trials that say that yet. It's kind of a hard thing to do a clinical trial with, but there's enough case studies, things like that, that I would say yes. But the other thing I've heard from people is one person, one person in particular, I'm thinking of a, um, a teenager who told me that um, he was getting radiation. At the, I think he was getting radiation at the time. And he said, when I went on the ketogenic diet for the first time, I got off the sofa since I started therapy. So I have heard from a number of people that it, it seems to help their quality of life, their energy levels, their um, clarity of their cognition, things of, of that nature. But again, it depends really on which patients you ask and how well are they doing it. And if you talk about a ketogenic diet, I always say people have to do it with, with a, um, a nutritionist that, or a dietitian that knows how to do a ketogenic diet. People who think they're on the diet might not be in ketosis. Some people get into ketosis very easily. Some people, it's very, very difficult. People say, what level do I have to be at? We don't know. So there's so many questions we don't know the answer to. But in terms of positive effects, the ones you mentioned are, you know, hit the nail on the head. I think it probably enhances, increases life in some people, enhances quality of life in many people. And I honestly think it probably makes a lot of the therapies work better. And I think it's going to, I think we're going to find more and more therapies that this actually enhances. Yeah, well, hopefully so. Are there uh, examples of patients that you've spoken to that have been on a ketogenic diet for a while and you know have lived far longer with brain cancer than others? Yes, there are some that, that I think did well. In fact, one, one of the, um, one patient, uh, she did so well that that was what made the clinicians at the Barron Neurological Institute actually say, hey, maybe we should look at this. Because I'd been asking them for a long time, but of course, curing, curing cancer in mice isn't all that hard in general. It doesn't always translate to patients, but there was one woman who went on the diet and did well enough that they said, wow, she's doing much better than we thought. Maybe we should try this. And that made them want to try it with, uh, with some patients. So is it a cure for brain tumors in people? Not yet, unfortunately. But I do think it's extending life. I, there's another uh, gentleman that stays in contact with me that's um, in the Southeast, and he's doing quite well. He, uh, he runs road races, does all kinds of things. So I know of a number of patients where this has really helped. When I say a number, I don't mean 20 or 30. I mean a handful, but that doesn't mean that there aren't more. It's just these are the people that have been in contact with me. Okay. What are some tweaks or changes to the ketogenic diet that in particular appear to be beneficial for people with brain cancer? No idea. Uh, there just, oh, okay. just isn't enough data about different kinds. 
different tweaks, different things that might be better. I know Dr. Um, Chris Smith, who is a fantastic neurosurgeon at the Barron Neurological Institute. He's um, really one of the top brain tumor surgeon that I know of, um, or one of the top that I know of and sees lots and lots of patients. He believes not in a, not necessarily vegetarian, but to a lot of uh, plant-based diets. He also strong, and you should have him on a show. He's fantastic. He also okay. very strongly believes in, um, in doing, and I think this is really important. And I think for clinical trials, I'd love to see this added to clinical trials. There is such a thing as metabologenomics, where you can actually get your, your body, not your tumor, but your, your, you as a person tested for the, um, your genetic metabolism, essentially, for lack of a better word. How is your metabolism or how are your genetics going to affect what you eat and how your body metabolizes it? So he and his wife is a dietitian who's been studying this also. Uh, and Dr. Nasha Winters, another fantastic person to have on your, on your uh, show. She actually right. is internationally known with this. And they actually look at what is an individual's body going to do with these nutrients? And I think with respect to tweaking a ketogenic diet, that's where the future is. And, and I don't mean the distant future. I mean, the very, the very close future is not just what do you eat, but what does your body do with it that might affect your tumor? Well, what does that mean? What are some of the particulars, the nuances of uh, metabolisms amongst people that you've observed? I haven't observed it. I don't, I don't do that work. They do. Okay. It's mostly... So what types of food should somebody eat that's more likely to get them into ketosis? Should they eat dairy? Shouldn't they eat dairy? Should they eat, um, you know, I honestly, right off the top of my head, I can't come up with things offhand, but I know that they can, they can modify the diet. Dairy is the first one that kind of came to mind. Meat, you know, how much meat, how much different uh, nutrients, different uh, vitamins, minerals, things like that. But they've got ways of taking this, this information and really kind of customizing things to help to help a person get into ketosis. Cause it's even things like, well, the, the things that come to mind easily is how many calories should somebody eat? Some people think you should drop your calories way down. Fasting will mimic ketosis. Some people yeah. don't necessarily have to do that. Should the person lose weight? Should the person not lose weight? Some people are, are already thin enough. They really shouldn't lose weight. They need their energy to, to uh, fight their tumor. That doesn't mean they can't be in ketosis. So there's, it's a very, very individual thing. And that's why I say people need to be work with a dietitian, but that next step is doing the metabologenomics also and having somebody really customize things at a level that honestly, I, I can't even speak to. Yeah. So what, what would be a happy, uh, you know, somewhat short-term results a year or two for you? Are you, are you close to any breakthroughs or anything you feel like, or is it uh, just going to be like, keep, keep going and many years down the road, you'll, you'll get there. What I would really like to do is get some data on some of these pediatric tumors and um, see if we can get, get this into the pediatric brain tumor population. I am working with, even though, even though the, the uh, research laboratory of Phoenix Children's has closed, I am working with the neuro-oncologist there, Dr. Lindsay Hoffman, and uh, actually Dr. Chris Smith is part of this group, and Phoenix Children's has fantastic dietitians for the ketogenic diet because of their epilepsy uh, um, clinic, and we are working at getting a, a pilot clinical trial going there in malignant brain tumors in kids to see if the ketogenic diet will help with that. So that's kind of where I would really like to see this go is uh, to really get this into the pediatric population for brain tumors. Brain tumors are the leading cause of death due to solid tumors in children. And uh, yeah, I think, it's terrible. Yeah, it's terrible. And there are some, some of the diagnoses like DIPG are really just unbelievably horrible. Uh, the other thing I would really oh. like to see that I, 
I have a gut feeling, but not a lot of data on yet, not enough to even come close to a paper yet. But I think the ketogenic diet is going to protect these kids' normal brain to some extent from radiation. Because when you, when a child is treated for a brain tumor, they have virtually, if, if they get the hard treatment, if it's a malignant tumor, the chance of them having long-term issues is extremely high, long-term problems. So I'd like to see if the ketogenic diet maybe protects them from some of that. And again, this is a, that, that's a little bit more long-term, obviously, because you've got to wait and see what happens. But um, if we can get this into kids, I think it's going to be a very positive thing. Yeah, yeah no, definitely. Well, very good. Adrian, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work in particular? And then maybe some general resources for you know, parents of kids with brain cancer or people that have brain cancer? Some of the talks I've given in the past are online on YouTube. They can look me up. It's Adrian, middle initial C, last name Shep, PhD. I think they can also look up Dr. Chris Smith, K-R-I-S, last name S-M-I-T-H, M-D. Dr. Nasha Winters has a website and she's just amazing on uh, a lot about metabolism and, and tumors. It's uh, Nasha, it's spelled like Nasha, but it's Nasha Winters. And she also has a book out there. There are some foundations that have information. They were begun for epilepsy, but they've got a lot of information now. They include brain tumors, and they've got a lot of information about the ketogenic diet. There's the Charlie Foundation and Matthew's mm-hmm. Friends. Charlie Foundation is in the U.S. Matthew's Friends is in the U.K. And a really fantastic resource for pediatric brain tumors and pediatric cancers in general is the Max Love Project. And Max Love is one word. And they've got a lot mm-hmm. of really excellent online resources and, and an excellent parent support system. Essentially, it's more than just okay. a parent support group. It's really a, a, a whole system for thrivership, not just survivorship. So for, for pediatric cancers, that's a really fantastic place to go. Okay. Well, very good, Adrian. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And the work you do is like super important. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.